Hi, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This show is a bit different than one of our typical shows. Typically, we have a live performance where we talk to a smart person about a particular issue, and a team of improvisers bring it to life using completely unscripted comedy. We'll then take up the audio from the interview and put it on as a podcast. In this case, this is part of a project we call Mayorapolis, where we are doing interviews with the six leading candidates in the 2017 Minneapolis mayoral race. We wanted to sit down and talk with them to get kind of deeper on some of the issues, to get past some of the talking points and talk to them about what policies they'd pursue to make their different ideas happen and how they'd get them done. Our guest this episode is Raymond Dean. Representative Raymond Dean is in his third term in the Minnesota House. He represents District 59B, which includes parts of downtown and North Minneapolis. He is trained as and has worked as an architect for many years. Our conversation with Dean covered his proposals for increasing affordable housing options in the city, elaborating on his statements about demilitarizing the police, and whether or not listeners of this podcast should get two votes. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Tane Danger. I'm the uh, host and co-founder of the Theater of Public Policy, along with Brandon Boat. Hello. And we uh, have been doing a series of conversations with the leading candidates for mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, about four years ago, we did a similar thing where we actually had folks on our live show, uh, but we couldn't have everyone then, partially because there were 35 candidates. But this time, there's actually like a reasonable number of candidates in our mind that we could talk to uh, all or almost all of them. And so we invited them all to come in and do these audio conversations. And that's what this is. And today, I'm very excited. We have uh, Representative Ray Dean with it. Do you do Ray or Raymond? Because I've seen it both ways. Do you like it one way or the other more? So, do you want the honest truth? I do. Um, I'm fine with Ray in context of conversation. But when I see my name in print, I really like to see Raymond. Raymond? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Why? Can, you, can I just ask it's, why? It's, you know, as I'm a studio arts major and architect. And so um, for me, just the way a three-lettered first name and a four-lettered last name looks, it kind of seems Well, do, what odd. you have? A, I, I was about to ask, do you have a middle name or middle initial? I actually do. My middle name is Howard. And if you remember, I think there was a governor from New England named Howard Dean. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I, 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 just, I, I don't I, use my middle name. I was more familiar with just his medical work. than. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I was thinking you could be Ray H. Dean. I could. Yeah. Or I could be R.H. R.H. Dean. Dean like, like another R- famous. Yeah. Um, like Raymond Mayor? Thomas. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Well, this has been a great conversation <laughs> with. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, so uh, we're so excited to have you. I, I've been starting all these conversations asking uh, what. It's sort of a big, broad question, but it's really important, I think, in the context of Minneapolis having this sort of pseudo-weak mayor system. Mm -hmm. You're already a state representative where you presumably are doing a lot of good work, uh, not a terrible, evil work. Good work uh, is what you were elected to do and you are doing. So why then uh, leave that to be mayor of Minneapolis? What, What is it that you can and want to do as a mayor that you can't do as a state representative or in some other context. And you said we only have 45 minutes, We right? do, and yeah. I have other questions. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief on that. Um, so I, I have, as you mentioned, the past three terms, been a state representative for District 59B, in which is... The fighting in, 59th. Yeah. Uh, 
it's most of downtown Minneapolis, the southern part of North Minneapolis, and of course that uh, part of the city in between with the White House District and North Loop, and and a little part of Bryn Mawr, and a little part of Elliott Park. And I've very much enjoyed the work that I've been doing at uh, the Capitol. The role of mayor is very different than the role of a legislature. I work with 201 people in the Senate and the House. You know, we create policy that then, of course, uh, goes before the governor. And I've been watching closely what's been going on in my city the past few years. And it was one of those things that a mayor has a role of not just, you know, helping to set the budget, not just being in charge of public safety and all those types of things. The mayor really has, I think, a significant role about communicating with the people in the city about what our city can be, what it should be, and what are those things we can do to make sure that everybody is prosperous. And when you consider the disparities that we have in the city of Minneapolis, some of the largest in the country uh, for many cities for, you know, the difference between white folks and people of color and indigenous people, I just felt that Given the experiences I've had in life, given my experiences of working at the Capitol, that those type of experiences would translate into a mayor who could actually get things done in the city of Minneapolis and working with the city council. You mentioned that, you know, the system seems a little bit skewed, that the mayor doesn't have as much um, a much power in the structure of government. But at the same time, I think the mayor has a critical role in working with the city council to assure that the best work's being done for the people in Minneapolis. So is your is your drive to run for mayor now then, it, you say you've been watching for the last several years, that uh, there are things that just haven't happened or things that aren't happening fast enough? Because I can imagine some folks saying the things that you're pointing to are really long-term problems and, you know, maybe we're making progress on some of those, but is it a question of we're not moving fast enough or are there things that we're just not doing at all? And, and what are those then? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that we're not doing things fast enough. We're, we're seeing that our society is changing rapidly uh, it's hard to believe that, you know, 10 years ago, almost nobody had a cell phone in their pocket. And now everybody has a cell phone p- in their pocket. And we're well, they re- didn't fit in pockets back then, maybe well, like yeah. they were just you had to carry them. around. Like, did you I am you seem like uh, no offense. You seem like a kind of person who might have had a car phone. Did you ever have a car? Phone? I never had a car phone, but I worked with people that did have car. Phones. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was always an odd situation. Uh, and I remember, you know, we complain about a $70 phone bill today. I mean, they had like $400 a month phone I bills bet. when they had car phones. Yeah. And you could only you, you could only call grandma on Sunday afternoons from yeah. the car phone because that's when the rates, <laughs> rates were the lowest. Low. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, so the world's changing very rapidly. It's changing. And Minneapolis. What, what's, yeah. yeah. Minneapolis is changing rapidly, too. Uh, you go back 30, 40 years ago, we had roughly a population where 10 percent of the people in the city were people of color indigenous people and today we're approaching 40 percent of the people in minneapolis so we're not only seeing a demographic shift we've seen a shift in in labor uh manufacturing and those types of jobs Mm -hmm. 30 40 years ago were a lot different today we have a much greater service industry uh one of the things that i think is exciting about the city of minneapolis that not a lot of people know is we have a really growing burgeoning tech industry software and those types of things. So so there are some opportunities for us to actually be on the leading edge 
of some of these things. While at the same time, the city of Minneapolis is becoming a more expensive place to live. Uh, affordable housing has become an incredibly huge issue mm-hmm. as we begin to adjust uh, what it costs to live in the city. And if we want to keep the city similar to it is today, it's going to take not just a lot of work. It's going to take some innovative thinking. So what's I, – I'm going to just try and drill in on this. So give us some actual bullet points of like what what's not – happening now that would be happening sort of on a policy on the ground level under a, a dean administration that that isn't happening today what what is not happening that you want to fill that gap well i i, I think the easiest thing is to talk about the physical environment in the city i'm an architect by training i think about the physical environment and how that impacts people's lives uh, our investments have generally gone to the prosperous parts of the city and the whole theory behind that has often been they're the ones that are contributing the most as far as taxes to the city. And so you then, you know, redistribute that money back into those parts of the city where I think of the city as a whole entity that's interconnected. So we have some parts of the city that aren't doing well mm-hmm. and that there are opportunities that we can do some investments to begin to transform those. And, 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 some of the things that you talk about specifically have, I, I think about is the zoning and the way in which our codes are written that allow us to do certain things in certain parts of the city. Let's talk, you mentioned investments in particular. So let's talk about what uh, some of those uh, ways that the city should be spending money that it's not right now. Because again, this is one of those places some folks would point to and say, well, the city is investing money in a lot of different parts of the city on the north side Mm -hmm. and other places. But so is the point that it's not in the right places or that it's not enough or... uh, Or maybe the right kind of investment. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about maybe what is happening that you'd you'd like to see changed or different. Well, you know... Throughout the city, we have some neighborhoods that do really, really well. We have some neighborhoods that struggle. And the, the, the neighborhoods that struggle, they struggle for many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is generally lower-income people tend to live in those neighborhoods. And when you have less money, you tend to have difficulty with life in some areas, whether it's access to transportation, access to good, stable housing, you know, can be access to, um, to good food. In uh, in nutrition, so all of those things sort of you know converge on uh, individuals in their lives, and, and and many individuals will try to move and make their lives better, and they'll hit obstacles, and will get real discouraged. So, uh, as part of my uh, Bush Fellowship in 2012, I looked at cities and communities that uh, tend to be economically disadvantaged mm-hmm. and what were what was being done to try to transform those communities uh, the premise or the thesis was that you know people think poor neighborhoods look the way they do because they're poor and I challenged that to say that maybe poor communities are poor because of the way they look and that the whole notion is the environment that you walk out to every day impacts how you approach what you can do in the world. But I, there's a part. So I, are you running for mayor or like chief architect? No, I'm running for mayor. And, 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 and I'll get to that. And, and so when I talk about what we can do in those parts of the city, 
you know, the public sector has a huge role in what the built environment looks like, whether it's libraries, whether it's schools, whether it's, you know, infrastructure pieces, you know, transportation, whether it's parks and all those other things that actually then set a, a table or a plate for private developers to come in and create the amenities, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, coffee shops or, or, or whether it's other types of things that, you know, people want and need. Uh, you can divide, you know, you can talk about a walkable city and you can design a walkable city. But one thing that you have to have in a walkable city is things for people to walk to. Otherwise they're not going to walk. I'm really trying to nail down the, what the role of mayor has in trying to change some of these different Mm -hmm. things. So just uh, give us a, give us a hard example maybe of something that you could say, you know, if we did this, Mm -hmm. then we would have more of this kind of uh, landscape cityscape that you're talking about. Sure. So, so, you know, there, there, there are park settings, Mm -hmm. you know, the city invests a lot in parks, uh, some of that is related to the park board. Some of it is outside the park board's purview in the work that we do with that. So, so how we invest in those types of environments, I think, are important for people. Uh, the example that I always talk about is an illustration of how we value things is two parks that were dedicated one day apart last August. One of them was a $23 million park in front of U.S. Bank Stadium called Commons. Uh, another one was Freedom Square in North Minneapolis across the street from Capri Theater, and that was, I think, about 35000 So we should flip that. I, you know, I'm not going to say necessarily that we should flip that, but we should consider what are we doing with our resources and what are the impacts. I understand that the Commons is part of the downtown. It's part of, you know, this whole entertainment business sector that's very different than West Broadway Avenue in North Minneapolis. But it's that type of mindset to really stop and think about what are we doing in these communities and how when we tr- how can we transform them. And that includes not just doing public projects, mm-hmm. but having public par- partnerships with private investors and look at, you know, the triple bottom line of people, you know, planet and profits in developing what we do because the environment's a huge piece as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that energy, energy consumption is a big thing. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about what's going to happen in California uh, on Monday when the eclipse happens because they have to make up like a ton of solar energy that they provide services. And they say it's like 6 million homes. So uh, under the Dean administration, zero solar eclipses is a promise that you're making. Well, I'd have to look at the the, the schedule, the calendar over the next. But you, uh, I mean, years. you as mayor, you have that authority, I think. Right. Well, I, I would I would say that uh, I would love the city to be in a place that a solar eclipse would actually have the impact on the energy that we're generating through renewables and through solar energy and things like that. That would be, in my world, a really good problem to have to deal with. So uh, I, I, you opened up the question uh, or the topics generally of north side in investments there, which is something we got when we put this out. We had a lot of folks wanting to ask about this. So uh, this park piece is one. A lot of folks, though, asked, how do you drive investment uh, into the north side in a way where uh, it raises up the people who are already there and not just sort of encourages folks, you know, to come in and develop it for them, uh, something along those lines. So 
again, and I'd really love to hear like some specifics on how you would sort of start to do this. What does the work look like from the mayor's office for that kind of thing? Sure. Well, I think the key thing when we look at certain neighborhoods and communities in the city of Minneapolis is how do we lift neighborhoods without displacing the people that live there? And ultimately, that's often called gentrification. Uh, we know that, that that happens quite often uh, in a marketplace where housing costs get more expensive because you have different people looking at different parts of the city to get to affordable housing. And those individuals who are currently living there sometimes get priced out. So we need to make sure that we have enough housing units so that those types of things don't drive the people that live out in that you know, out of that community. We need to be realistic about what are the programs that help people. Uh, You know, employment. What are we doing to help people that have uh, difficulty getting employment, whether it's through education, whether it's through uh, criminal records, whether it's through being unemployed for a long period of time? What are those things that we can do to create programs that not only train them, but also then incentivize employers to actually hire those individuals so we create a win-win situation because in a hot employment market where there's lots of people for employers to select from you know they become really really selective and of course they're going to hire who they think is going to be the best person they can and that's generally not someone that no, has worked against me my whole life yeah uh, well um <laughs> That's why you're doing this. Yeah, right? exactly. It's the whole That's idea. why I do a mayoral podcast for free. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so entrepreneurship. How do you do? How do you do that though? Is I mean that nobody will run against the idea of us uh, trying to get folks more uh, education and training to fill some of these gaps. But again, I I guess it's partially I, mm-hmm. I try and grapple with what's the mayor's role in making that happen. What are the policies that you can actually put in place to turn that dial? Well, the mayor sets the budget. So, you know, I always say that a budget just isn't a financial document. It's also a moral document. What are those things you value? So making sure that we are dedicating resources to take individuals who may struggle and create opportunities for them. Because in the end, when we move someone from being at a place where they need assistance Mm -hmm. to a place that they're paying taxes... I mean, that's a benefit to everybody. So what does that look like? What's that program look well, like? Well, I, I think there, there are programs that were to make sure that folks are able to uh, get their high school diploma if they didn't graduate, so a GED, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and creating that, those opportunities, making sure that there are businesses where those jobs are lined up so that these individuals can actually get employment. Uh, and beyond that... It's also about how do we create an environment where businesses can do well and thrive because they'll hire people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, you know, everybody always says that businesses create are the ones that create jobs. I always say, well, really, consumers create jobs because if they're not buying services or they're not buying products, you show me a business that's creating a job out of thin air and those jobs aren't going to be around. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of sort of the Silicon Valley tech startups seemingly, but uh, that's not, that's not as much our thing uh, here of, you know, we could have the next, uh, you know, tech startup that has no profit, but yet somehow is valued at $6 billion. That could be a goal. That could be a great goal. And like I said, you know, I, I, I think we have a great 
tech community that's being built here. And so is there is there sort of a program that exists now that you look to as a model for uh, turning, uh, getting some of this going, uh, the the workforce development piece, the education piece. I, I'm just trying to sort yeah, of nail yeah. down for folks where where would this investment actually go? What would it look like? So you know, we've talked a little bit about the tech companies, and I don't know if you're familiar who Van Jones is. Van Van Jones. Uh, from, he had that um, '60s band. He's saying about the no, brown-eyed no, no, girl. No, 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 no. That that that's. Uh, <laughs> Who, who is that? I don't know. We'll never know yeah, now. Yeah, no. Van I, Morrison yeah. is who you're thinking of. No, Van Jones actually worked at the White House under Obama for a short time w- around uh, green jobs and green mm-hmm. energy. And he's working now uh, to do two things. He, he's trying to reduce the prison population. And one of the ways in which he is working to do that is through training uh, young inner city youth to learn how to code. Because the jobs in the future aren't going to be making things. They're actually going to be around coding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you think about the smart refrigerator you're going to have that's going to you know, be able to tell when you're low on milk and it's going to order milk from Amazon. I can't let you Amazon. eat that, Tane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that's all going to be code. You've already had 1% milk today. Uh, right. So I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's all going to be... So coding, is it like a city program to teach people to code or... I, I, I think it's actually working with uh, our public education system, making sure that we have apprentice programs for uh, these individuals when they begin to move out into the workforce. To actually, you know, because we all know that education only plays a certain role. And whereas 40, 50 years ago, businesses trained people. Today, businesses don't have a lot of those resources to sort of take that time Mm -hmm. for, you know, large scale training of individuals. And ultimately, they're looking for someone that's going to become uh, really contributing to their bottom line rather quickly. So figuring out what those programs are and how the industry works with the public sector to make sure that we have those types of things in place. Um, you, you also brought up the notion of uh, increasing affordable housing uh, throughout the city. And you actually brought up something that's really interesting that we've asked some folks about um, this idea of the codes and ways beyond just financial dis- uh, incentives that uh, get people either to build more affordable housing or not build it. So I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about uh, what is increasing affordable housing look like under a mayor dean. Uh, how how do how does that roll out? So we expect another twenty thirty thousand people to move into the city of Minneapolis in probably the next ten to fifteen years. So we don't have the housing stock to accommodate those. Uh, I always try to talk about affordable housing in the context of we have a general housing need in the city as well. So we should be considering how our city is zoned, mm-hmm. what that means. Uh, you know, we have commercial corridors, we have transit areas, places that I think are opportunities to have higher density mm-hmm. in figuring out exactly what that looks like. Um, and then we have affordable needs for people that live at or below 50% of the median income. Mm-hmm. And in providing that housing, we need to provide housing across the whole spectrum. So we need to build more of everything. We need to build more of everything, but not everywhere. 
We're not. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've had discussions with folks. I think we have some still parts of the city that were built on a model in the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. We changed some of our zoning in the 70s. So we have areas that are single-family houses that aren't along major corridors, aren't along transportation nodes, that, that when we look at those areas, what we should do, I would propose, and, and I have proposed in my uh, affordable housing policy, that we consider the zoning to allow for uh, duplexes and possible triplexes, something that was in place long before the 70s, before we changed our zoning, but our current zoning won't allow that. Now, it would have to be within a certain parameter <clears throat> of square footages so that we're not creating you know, the monster house next to you know, single-story bungalows or one and a half story houses. I mean, it's just inter- the monster house thing. A lot of what we've been seeing there, at least in my experience, hasn't been duplex monster duplexers or triplexes. They've been more monster, almost McMansions. I don't know what a step down from McMansion is. Sort of like mini McMansions uh, in certain parts of the. And so, I, is that also part of it? Trying to zone uh, out folks building up gigantic single-family homes, too? When we get into the areas of zoning, that becomes a real difficult I know. That's why piece. I'm asking. Yeah. Isn't uh, this fun? Yeah. No, it, it, it is fun. And, and, you know, as an architect, I've dealt with all this type of stuff. Uh, and, and, and so what are the limits that the zoning allows? What do you... Uh, developers and what do you, you know, uh, single family homeowners do to try to sort of push the limit to maximize what they can get. Right. That's always an interesting conundrum that the city has to deal with. Because if the city says no, the city begins to open itself up to lawsuits. And when we're talking about meeting a housing need, we know that lawsuits then stretch out time. Right. So so how do you shape the, the zoning and the policies and what we allow and what we don't allow so that we're able to get more housing, but at the same time, so we're not making drastic, uh, disruptive changes in neighborhoods that are going to be resisted? So because, how do we do that? Because as they resist them, the time to actually build those more units begin to expand. I think we need to be really clear on where we're going to allow what. And I think by allowing duplexes uh, to be built in what's now R1 zoning would create opportunities for more units. We've approved the accessible dwelling units. Uh, I believe the caveat, though, is currently you have to be an owner-occupier of the existing home in order to have an accessible dwelling unit on your property, which is a smaller unit. You know, if we think about the changes coming to transportation, and less people owning cars. We have all these garages throughout the city that could be converted into smaller units for people at a lower cost. And so those are the types of things that, you know, we've done some stuff and we need to continue to do more. Are there places that, so uh, duplexes, triplexes uh, seem to be, spread that out throughout. We already have those in those neighborhoods already. So we may, you know, that then it's okay for doing more of those. Where, uh, more significant up zoning Mm -hmm. is where, where is that then? And where isn't it? Well, I I think I just said where I don't think it is. Yeah. And and that's in in some of the, uh, interior neighborhoods. I Mm -hmm. would talk about the city. I think up zoning can occur along our major transportation corridors. 
in commercial corridors. You know, I mean, you can go all over this city and look at buildings that were built in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and many of them have retail on the ground floor, and we'll have two or three stories of apartment buildings. So like a project like uh, what we're seeing uh, near the old uh, Nye's Polonaise uh, site, is that is that sort of a good example of uh, increasing density? Would we see more of stuff like that under Dean administration, or, or was that not so good? I mean, it did take away nice polonaise. I know that's a bad, that's a big bad, bad, you know, thing. Uh, I think we've seen what's happened in that part of the city, and that we are seeing more and more development. And once density gets to a point, it becomes somewhat natural. Yeah. Uh, So it was only a matter of time before the value of that property was going to be in such a place where they were able to uh, to get something like that approved. You know, there's another project that's going over on the Superior Plating site. Nord something. Uh, and everything here starts with Nord. It's yeah, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it appears that there's, you know, uh, 18 to 22 story building. It seems like a great context uh, for that to happen. So there are parts of the city where it makes sense. I'm really excited about the Upper Harbor Terminal redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that creates an opportunity for not just higher density, but also making sure that affordable units are part of that as a way of trying to create mixed income neighborhoods because we all know that, you know, a good city has, you know, mixed incomes living close proximity where we separate the people of wealth from the people that are poor. That's where we begin to create some stratification and some difficulties. So on that same note, affordable housing, uh, if the city is building or or, uh, putting money into building more affordable housing throughout the city, is should affordable housing basically be everywhere uh, in every part of the city? Is there anywhere that uh, it should be more left up to the neighborhoods, whether there's more affordable housing in their uh, in their neighborhood? Uh, how does that look under a dean? I would say, yes, we need to have affordable housing everywhere. And I think the perception is affordable housing is bad, run down, crappy housing. Mm-hmm. I worked at an architecture firm that developed the first affordable housing project in the Mills District, just almost right across the street from the Guthrie. Right. And nobody knew it was an affordable housing project because it was a good project. It fit in with the neighborhood. It you know met all the requirements, but it was an affordable housing project. And when they went to build the Mills Quarter, uh, there was resistance on the neighborhood. Say, well, we don't want affordable housing here. We have really expensive units. And I think it it was an awakening for some folks to realize we already had affordable housing in our community because affordable housing doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be bad for the community. And in many ways, those people that live in those units are the people that are working in our restaurants. You know, they're helping us keep our houses. You know, they're doing construction, all those types of things. These are people that are an important part of who we are as a city. So we should have a place for them to live in the city. One other piece on housing that we started to touch on was uh, this question of coding uh, codes. And particularly, I'm interested, there was a big report that came out about uh, affordable housing throughout the sort of Twin Cities metro. And one of the things that it dinged Minneapolis for were two things. One, that we have these design guidelines, which I imagine uh, to bring up for another. I I don't know if people have heard yet, but you used to be an architect. uh, That seems to uh, be a theme. Uh, So uh, so the design guidelines that sort of limit what 
can be built and, and what it needs to look like in the city. And this report said that's making it harder for uh, some affordable housing and new development projects to happen. Also, definition of a family and who uh, is allowed to live together. So we have sort of strict rules in comparison to other places about only X number of people in the no city. No more than four unrelated people. No more than four presence. unrelated people. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, either of those things, things that you would want to change if you were mayor, uh, either on the design guidelines side or the family definition, how many folks can live in a, a single unit? Yeah, I, I think that we should have an open conversation what, about what that means. Uh, families are changing. They're very different these days, uh, recognizing that. And with that affordable housing need, there might be some opportunities for things a little bit different. I, I don't want to say we're going back to the 30s, 20s, 30s, and 40s of rooming houses, but opportunities where we'll have smaller size units within a particular uh, larger facility. Uh, relative to design guidelines, design guidelines get really, really complicated. Um, <clears throat> if you've driven around this <clears throat> city, excuse me, I'm going to grab. Uh, yeah, no. I, this is my Marco Rubio. Ha! Uh, poor Marco Rubio. He'll never live that down. Uh, <clears throat> I wonder how many bottles of water a day he gets just sent to him as sort of gag gifts. That would be really interesting to find out. Yeah. Uh, I don't need anyone to send me bottles of water. <laughs> Uh, matter of fact, I love it when people Could, use reusable bottles. That is, there is a candidate for mayor who's basically he's giving out bottles of water pretty regularly out I on the know. streets, and so I don't know if he if he listens to this, he might just drive his truck up to your campaign headquarters. Well, no, I I, I I'm worried about the whales and all of the that's, plastic bottles that he's yeah. introducing into the environment. But that's another conversation. That is, yeah. So so so, so when we look at the, a lot of the uh, multi-unit buildings, apartment buildings, condominiums that are going to be built again, that we generally see buildings that are between four and six stories high. And part of that is economics. Part of it is, you know, how we have shaped our design guidelines that, you know, don't allow a certain number of, you know, linear feet of the same materials. Uh, all those types of things play into what some people have told me is uh, they all look the same. They all look the same. I mean, I I see them as a little bit different. I mean, when you have orange colored panels, you know, versus a brick building, I see those as a little bit different. But so, know, and is that a matter of the design guidelines, or just a matter of what's cost effective, or both? I think it's both. I I, I think that you know. So uh, then, how would you change that, or would you try and change any of that as mayor? I think that as a when we look at building development and we look at guidelines. We put rules in place to try to create a fair playing field uh, and something that is going to be good for the communities because how buildings look affect us personally every day uh, as we walk around in those environments. So we're trying to create something that has a positive impact and uh, helps our city to be a great city. Sometimes we can be way, way too rigid in those types of things. So less rigid. Not less rigid, but selectively less rigid. Selectively? Wow. Way to yeah. go out on a limb. Well, uh, you know, I mean, there, there, there are innovations. There are new things. There are things that come up that are going to be outside what is the norm. And if we just totally dismiss them, you know, I don't think that's going to be advantageous for our city moving forward. Now, 
you know, we talk about disruption is hard for people. Mm -hmm. Change is hard for people. Most people would just like something that's easy and comfortable and to go around their lives. But we know that today the acceleration of change is pretty incredible. Minneapolis is no longer just competing with Akron, you know, or Memphis. I mean, as were those, did we, was that our sort of like peer cities previously Akron? Cause we won by the way. Uh, if anyone's listening, like Minneapolis, we definitely beat Akron, I think. Well, but they did have, uh, you know, LeBron James. Well, yeah, sure. Whatever. (laughs) Well, uh, pretty big deal. Uh, but Akron is, you know, close to Cleveland. So pure wise, we probably consider Cleveland, uh, closer or like Seattle or those types of cities. I mean, we're competing with cities all over the world. Um, and, and, and those are important and, and believe it or not, Minneapolis and the connection to, um, Cuba is huge because the connection of agriculture and things like that, we have a transportation way, uh, that, you know, the state of Minnesota can have a huge role in, in meeting some things. So we're connected in ways that I think sometimes people don't think about as I, I honestly would really love to have a conversation about Cuba policy. Uh, I wrote about this extensively as a a graduate student, but uh, instead, in the spirit of uh, uncomfortable conversations, let's talk about policing. Sure. Uh, Why is that uncomfortable? um, Well, well, let's see how it goes. Uh, So uh, I think a lot of folks have at least seen a headline or seen folks attack you over uh, what... Uh, has been described, as you've said, uh, to a proposal to potentially disarm the police is the way that it's been framed. And so I'm wondering if you can talk through what exactly that was, what that what sure. you were talking about there and, and what the act, what your actual proposal yeah, there yeah, is. Yeah. Well, I mean, a few weeks ago, I had an op ed piece in the Star Tribune, which actually sort of broke down what I meant, because a lot of people are like, God, Ray wants to take away guns from all cops. Well, I don't see disarming the police as taking away guns from all cops. I I believe that there are times where cops need guns, and there are times when cops don't need to have guns. doesn't mean they don't have to have other types of uh, uh, things for protection, whether that's tasers or whether that's mace or other types of things. But when you always carry around a lethal uh, piece of force that can kill someone, that creates opportunities where you might use it, and we've seen that happen several times. So then how do we figure out which police officers should or shouldn't have uh, uh, guns on them? Yeah, well, we, we, we can look to other parts of the United States. We can look to other parts of the world. Uh, you know, the Chief Harto talked a lot about the uh, Scotland model um, and how they police. All their officers don't carry guns. Uh, you know, do, do And they have, those, they have those curved hats. Uh, right? Is that Scotland? I, 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 I don't know if that's Scotland. Um, well, we could get curved hats. We could, but I would rather use the resources for public safety on something a little bit more uh, impactful than curved hats. They, well, they might make our cops feel more friendly. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's... It's hard to be... It's harder, maybe, to be mean in a in a hat. Uh, although, I guess World War One Germans, they figured it out. How to be yeah. mean and yeah. weird looking hats. So, yeah. but, but, but it how is, do we figure out who yeah. gets who, what police officers and where and when? Like, how would this actually sort of play out? Yeah. So, I, I would say in, in general policing, uh, in getting to know your community and things like that, which we need more cops to do, uh, they don't necessarily have to have a sidearm, mm-hmm. I mean, a gun on their person, you know, possibly 
you know, a, a, a gun in their car, which, by the way, many officers have other more uh, high-intensity weaponry in their cars currently. Uh, so it wouldn't be unusual for them right. to consider having to go to their car should they find themselves in a situation where they feel that they need a larger level of protection. I, I think the thing uh, I, the thing that immediately comes to mind for a lot of folks would be, well, a police officer doesn't maybe know when uh, some situation is going to come up where they might need a firearm for whatever reason. And so uh, that's why they have them on them all the time. Uh, it, and so I, I'm still trying to sort of sort out how we if this policy were to be proposed, where how do we figure that out in terms of, you know, these are the officers who probably need a weapon on them regular? Is it because they're in more dangerous parts of the city? Is it because they are uh, doing different kind of work? Uh, what? How does this actually play out? I, I, I think it's both of those and more. And, and the reason that I say and more is that we have officers that are just out on regular patrol. You know, then we have officers that are responding to calls. You often know what type of call you're responding to, uh, which could be an indication of whether or not you should be carrying your gun at the time you arrive. Uh, the, the, the story of a cop never knows when they need to have their gun um, is probably a very, very small set of incidences where an officer may find himself in a, or herself in a situation where things may change very fast. Um, part of that could be addressed through training, actually I identifying those types of situations so an officer may be more prepared. I, I think about um, the recent shooting of Philando Castile by Officer Yanez, and I watched the video. I could only watch it twice. It was really, really hard to watch. Yeah. Um, and when I think about the situation, I think about the officer could have stepped behind the driver's door, which would have put him itself in a more safe position because if you're a driver in a car to pull a gun and to turn around and to go out your window and stuff, as that becomes more, uh, more difficult and creates opportunities for the officer to respond differently. I mean, officers are trained to use lethal force in situations when they are fearful of themselves, their life, someone else's life, or when they feel that there's uh, grave bodily harm. And I believe that there are times when an officer would be more appropriate in using a taser because the threat isn't at the level that they initially might think it is, uh, where they might be able to use uh, an asp or what's often called a nightstick. I was about to ask, yeah. just whether they're carrying snakes around with them, uh, but that's a different kind of asp. Uh, yeah, it's a different kind of ass, but yeah, yeah, it, it's an expandable yeah. club is really what it is. So, I mean, there there are a lot of things we can do differently with officers. We can't do what I'm proposing without new kinds of training. So what is, uh, again, this is one of the places uh, folks might say, well, we've introduced some new kinds of training uh, mm -hmm. in the last several years, implicit bias training. Uh, more community policing uh, uh, training pieces. So is it, what What does it look like? I won't even try and fill in the sure, blank for sure, you. What sure. does it look like under? Well, I, I, I think first be, when we talk about community policing, we need to be real about what we're talking about. Currently we have a police force that's been militarized. 
And if we think we're going to have community policing where the police still have military-style military weaponry and vehicles and things like that, we're not going to have community policing. So, so first, and it's something I said from day one of this campaign, is we need to demilitarize our police. We need to change that setting uh, to take away that barrier between the public and between the officers. Uh, training is really important, and it's great to see some of that start to happen. Um, you know, I was proud to carry or be an author with legislation with Tony Cornish, in the Public Safety Committee, the chair, Republican, no one would accuse him of being a lefty liberal. No, not uh, with that mustache. No, um, no. Uh, and we worked together on legislation that brought $12 million a year to officers throughout the state of Minnesota for training in three areas. Uh, cultural competencies, which includes implicit bias, uh, identifying mental health situations and crises versus criminal activities, and to respond accordingly. And lastly, mediation and de-escalation. Those are critical things that officers today need in order to do their jobs. Uh, Ultimately, making the community safer Mm -hmm. is the best thing that a cop can do when it gets to public safety. And so, again, those things to some, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm trying to ferret out. The some of those trainings are in place right now, and so is it under a dean administration that there's those are become ongoing trainings. They happen more often. Is it that there's different types of I, what's different uh, if you're mayor? Yeah, well, um, let's be clear that we've just started this training with right. Minneapolis Police Department. It's something that needs to continue moving forward. It, we need all of our officers to sort of buy into a new way of policing in the city. We need to change police culture so that an officer feels like they can actually say, you know, to their fellow officer, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of buying into the code of blue, which is we just don't talk about the bad things that happen. Uh, that's gotten us nowhere. It doesn't make a resident safer. It doesn't make police safer. So, yeah, it would, it would actually, uh, you know, we would be dedicated to how we're training our officers to work out in the communities and how they interact with the communities as well. Uh, We need to do a better job of hiring officers or putting people into training programs, whether it's through cadet training or other types of training that look more like our community. We need to do that. And and lastly, well, I mean, how is the way we're doing it right now? We're going into schools. We're talking to uh, individuals who might be, not be the typical white male uh, to come in. My, my favorite police chief of all time is uh, Chief uh, Schnell from Maplewood who just retri- retired. It's weird. I, not a lot of people might have their favorite police chief of all, but do you, are they like baseball cards that you have from police chiefs? Uh, no cards. I've just worked with them on a lot of issues around juvenile detention, alternative initiatives, and many other things. The thing that makes him so unique is... Before going into law enforcement, he ended up uh, with a degree in master's in social work. So he has a different way of approaching law enforcement than I, it's my job to be in charge, my job to be enforcing the laws of the state of Minnesota. His is, what is the situation I've come to? Who are the individuals involved? What are the life occurrences that have put them in that space and how do i respond to in essence 
make the best situation for everybody. So to bring it back to Minneapolis is uh, the appointment of currently acting, potentially by the time people listen to this, uh, new police chief Arredondo, a good, is that a good appointment? It appears to be a good appointment. I mean, I, I've enjoyed uh, and liked what I've heard him say mm-hmm. as he's been speaking. I, I think with any police chief, you know, there's still a lot that needs to be seen. He seems to be respected amongst the rank and file. Uh, he seems to be prepared for the mantle of being the police chief. And uh, I would only wish great things mm-hmm. uh, for uh, who he's warmly called Rondo right. uh, as, as the chief of the city of Minneapolis. But we know that there's the administration at City Hall, there's the police chief in the police administration, and then there's the police federation, right? which is a totally different group, has totally different interests, and it will remain to be seen what that working relationship will be like between the leadership of the police federation and the leadership of the police department. So uh, another piece I want to get to before we run out of time, and you've started to steer us in this direction anyway, is this idea of... Uh, regionalism and sort of Minneapolis existing within a larger uh, community of cities and suburbs. And uh, you mentioned sort of uh, the Maplewood police chief being someone uh, that, you know, you respect and is good. I'm wondering, are there other things uh, you think about that Minneapolis should learn from the suburbs or some of our regional city partners, uh, things that you're seeing around the area that they're doing really well that we should bring back here to Minneapolis? I think when it comes to businesses, I think that some of our suburban uh, cohorts are able to do things with businesses that we've been unable to do. Part of that is because they have the the opportunity to do things in many ways that we we don't, whether it's through uh, availability of real estate, uh, whether it's the ability to subsidize uh, a business moving there and those types of things. I, I think that we need to pay attention because we're not just contributing globally. We're, we're actually competing as well locally. Uh, we have many Fortune 500 companies. So does that mean... Uh you know, we should be mirroring some of those moves or things that they're doing. We should be trying to subsidize businesses coming to Minneapolis. I think if we're going to subsidize businesses in Minneapolis, we need to actually get what they say they're going to bring. Far too often we've given subsidies to businesses and what they have promised have not followed through. So I think that if we're going to do any of those things, there has to be an accountable and actually a monetary accountability to what they do. Uh, so, so looking at those things are important. I think that some of the things that we deal with in the city of Minneapolis is really unique to our suburban neighbors. Uh, St. Paul is probably the closest in the issues that they deal with as a, a major metropolitan area. But Bloomington is very different. Uh, Woodbury is very different. You know, you could even say that Maple Grove is very different than Minneapolis and the city of St. Paul. I would go that far to say Maple Grove is different. Uh, um, so flipping that question, I'm also interested in the role of a mayor in terms of, of a mayor of Minneapolis. 
working with regional cities uh, to move some of the things that are important to us forward. So the kind of case in point of this is the minimum wage a lot of people point to and they say, you know, Minneapolis is raising its minimum wage to $15 an hour. I think, I don't know, almost everyone I've talked to says it would be better if we could do this sort of as a region. That would be nice uh, if we could all be raising our minimum wage more uh, or we could bring along some partners. So is there a role for the mayor of Minneapolis in trying to get some of the surrounding cities to come along and uh, with some of these uh, progressive policies uh, to move forward on those so that we act more as a region than just Minneapolis? Yeah, absolutely. But we know that Minneapolis has to take the lead. Um, we took the lead with uh, smoking uh, indoors. We've taken the lead with smoking in bars and restaurants. We've taken the lead on many, many things. And it's sort of the role as the major you know, city within the metropolitan area. Uh, I believe that conversations need to be had with mayors and city councils throughout the region. Uh, I think that with a seven-year ramp-up for small employers. I think that we're going to see other municipalities begin, begin to consider what their minimum wages are. And Is that something, though, that then you need you would push? Like you would go to those uh, suburban partners and say, uh, we, I want to show you what's working here in Minneapolis. Uh, you do it. Yeah, and maybe show them what's not working, too, and, and figure out how we can make this work better. I mean, I think that one of the things that concerns me a lot about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour in Minneapolis is how many people are we going to get applying for jobs in Minneapolis that currently work in Bloomington or currently work in Maple Grove or other places where they might only be making $12 an hour. So now all of a sudden we've created a hugely more competitive marketplace for employment in the city of Minneapolis when in the end, we want it to benefit the people of the city of Minneapolis. So how do we structure some things that might actually help employers? Is there uh, a way to structure? That seems like a really tricky thing to try and policy out, uh, to try and... No, I, I think there are opportunities to create grants for small businesses that hire people from what I would say are high unemployment census tracts in the city of Minneapolis, which then goes back to what we started this conversation with about how do you get people into jobs and those types of things. Uh, there, are, there are things we can do in the city of Minneapolis. And it's just a question of, are we dedicating the resources necessary to actually make those things happen? I mean, we have a very, very prosperous city. Um, so uh, we're just about out of time. The The last question I've been asking everybody, and it's a great, I think, uh, tag on to what you were just saying, is, okay, let's say you're mayor uh, and you can do one big thing that you get a mulligan on. Uh, so you get to propose and do something that's huge and maybe high risk, high reward. But if it doesn't work out, you can just like take it back and it's like it never happened. So what would that be for you? What would be your super high risk, high reward that you would do, but only on the premise that you could potentially get a mulligan if it didn't work out? Well, I, I wouldn't hope that I wouldn't need a mulligan. Hopefully. But, no, um, nobody wants a mulligan. May, may, make Minneapolis it. a zero energy city. A zero energy city or a zero? In other words, we, no, not zero waste. Not zero waste. Zero energy. In other words, we produce the energy that we use. But it's not, we're not like going back to, to candles. It's just we, we are using, it's not zero energy. It's not like blackout Minneapolis. No, it's not blackout. It's we utilize uh, many of the different things to actually generate energy. And then we use efficiency at the max 
in how we do things. We look at our transportation system and, and how that is consuming and using energy. We look at how we build in the city of Minneapolis and uh, ultimately be a zero energy city. That, uh, that I mean, is, is you, that... You, you, want, you said you wanted a big... I did want to be. No, my only pushback yeah. was, is that really that high of a risk? Like, what's the risk? I, I was looking for, you know, more. I don't know. We would, well, uh, encase the city in ice. Uh, and uh, I don't know. And no, that's that a high I, risk. I, I think the, the risk is how do you actually make that happen? Yeah. And how long is it going to take? How long is it going to take? <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, that would depend on the people of the city of Minneapolis and what they're willing to dedicate towards that. It would depend on how fast technology is changing in certain areas. It would depend on many, many factors. But I don't think it's just some pie-in-the-sky thing we should be thinking about. Yeah. I think it's something we should be working towards because we all know that energy dependence is a huge thing. And the more independent we can be, the more we can convert a electrical grid that was built at the turn of the last century into this century and what that looks like, uh, we can do great things. And, and ultimately, I think doing things like that are going to attract businesses, are going to attract people, that's going to allow our city to continue to grow. Uh, and at the same time, we're not then imposing more difficulties on people at the lower end of the economic scale. On that uh, very positive uh, green note, uh, I want to do a big thank you uh, to Representative uh, Raymond uh, Dean. Uh, in case somebody transcribes this podcast, I want to make sure that they get the whole name in there. Uh, thank you so much for spending this time with sure. us. And, and thank you and for all of the people that are still with us. I know, which after is this. just my mother, basically. Yeah, Actually, I don't yeah. know if she can figure out podcasts or not. But Well, you should teach her. Yeah, but yeah, you were yeah. about to say for all the people who are still yeah, listening. Yeah, who are still listening, I, I want to thank you for taking the time. And, and if you listen to me and the other candidates, uh, you know, I, I, I would hope that uh, I've enticed you to consider voting for me come this November 7th. Yes. Well, if they've listened all this way through, if they've listened through all of the candidates, then I mean, I don't. They should get something special. They should get. They should get two votes. I think we can all agree. Uh, I don't think we can agree on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> on that note, thank you so much, uh, Representative Ray Dean. Fantastic. Thank you for listening. These were recorded live at Folklore. Folklore is a digital experience company with offices in Minneapolis and San Diego. They specialize in digital strategy, user experience, design, and development for small businesses and large corporations alike. Learn more at folklore.digital. Our music was composed by Keegan Fraley. If you want to find out more about the theater of public policy or come to an upcoming show, you can find us on the web at www.t2p2.net. <laughs>